but that's one of the things we run into is there's a lot of people that just want to go hunt, but they're not as vocal. They don't show up to the meetings as much. And, and like I told you earlier, you know, folks that show up to the public meetings and, and that are engaged in the public process, they tend to get what they want. Yes. And so if the only, if the only folks that show up are folks who are like, well, I don't care if I only get to hunt once every five or 10 years, but I want to have a really good chance to take a really big buck, you know, then that's the way our management has shifted. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. So welcome back to the Rockcast, everyone. This is Travis Hobbs. I'm going to be hosting today's show. I wanted to do a small series with a few various state game agencies to discuss how they implement tags, management decisions, uh, new things in the works or changes. And I think this one's going to be really fun to do. Um, somehow today I have conned <laughs> into joining me the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources Big Game Coordinator, Dax Mangus. Hey, Travis. How, how you doing? Good to be with you. Good. Well, I, the, Dax, serious. Thanks, man, for taking some time out of your day to jump on here. Um, it's awesome to get to talk to the guy who actually presents all these, uh, biologist recommendations to an angry mob of hunters that are never happy. Uh, it's kind of fun to discuss this kind of stuff. So, <laughs> but in all seriousness, you do have one of the hardest jobs on earth. Um, it's, it's complicated. I want to kind of jump into just decisions and how things come up and just try to give people a better idea of all the work and data that goes into all of this. Cause it really is awesome stuff. Um, and I don't know, before we do, Dax, you want to introduce yourself to the listeners and like, you just kind of, I, whatever you want to discuss there and just kind of give us a little background. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm from Utah originally. Um, I was born in Northern Utah. I grew up though, mostly in Southern Utah around St. George area. Um, my dad's a big shooter, loves shooting. And I think he's a shooter first and maybe a, a hunter second, but we, we did go hunting and, and, uh, and I, I loved it. And so I ended up loving the hunting more than the shooting. And I think my dad was a little bummed. I wasn't as into it. He's like a big reloader and does yeah. all that stuff. And because of that, I'm, I'm lazy and I just have my dad load all my ammo and everything for me. But I, I love to hunt. Um, I went, went to school at Utah state and, uh, and got a wildlife biology degree at Utah state. Uh, went on and did a did a master's in, in wildlife biology up there as well. Um, I worked on I did my master's research on uh, Deseret Land and Livestock Ranch. It's a it's the largest private ranch private ranch in in Utah. Uh, it's in kind of northern northeastern corner up along the Wyoming border, and uh, did an elk study there, and that was just it was awesome. What a, what a cool place to to look at elk and, and work. Um, I started working for the Division of Wildlife as an intern in northern Utah on the cash unit in 2005, and uh, I was there for a couple of years doing that as a finishing up my uh, my graduate work, and then I went out to the uh, the northeastern part uh, of the northeastern region for the Division of Wildlife, and I was the biologist on the Bookcliff unit for five years, 
And then I was uh, the wildlife program manager out of that northeastern region, so kind of that whole northeastern corner of the state for 10 years. Uh, I did like a like a six month uh, like uh, stretch assignment or or, or uh, detail as upland game coordinator for a while out of our Salt Lake office, and then um, about a year ago I got hired as the big game program coordinator statewide. So uh, I've been involved in big game issues. You know that's what I did my master's work on and that's what I've been really heavily involved in throughout most of my career because I love big game and I've you know hunted in multiple states all around the west I you know I I wish I had a bunch of 200 inch bucks and 380 bulls hanging on my wall I don't but I've hunted in a lot of states I've harvested a lot of animals I love to hunt and that's why I decided I wanted to work here and work for the division of wildlife because I, I care about the resource and and, uh, and I want to be involved in the management, try to do good things for it so I can keep enjoying hunting and my kids and maybe grandkids someday. And, you know, everyone can can keep enjoying it. So that's that's kind of my my background, I guess, and how I came to came to be where I'm at. I, I question my decision sometimes whether I should have <laughs> put into that big game coordinator job or not. It's, like you said, it is kind of a rough one sometimes. It, it's also really cool, though, too. There's a lot of really neat stuff going on and a lot of things happening behind the scenes that I think not, not everyone's aware of. And I'm happy to talk with you about some of that stuff today and cool and, and dive into some of the, the background behind some of these recommendations and decisions and, and how, how the sausage is made a little bit. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Dax, I think it's, it's super cool. Like I, I, first off, I want to say you do an awesome job as the big game coordinator. And I don't know if any of our listeners have got a chance to watch some of your presentations on tag recommendations and stuff. You do a fantastic job. So, and that's one cool thing. Like I love the division, Utah division of wildlife does such a good job on public outreach. Like I think there's just, it's so cool how all the meetings are streamed online from rack meetings to wildlife board meetings to all your presentations it's, I, it's so cool. And I want to get into that a little bit, like just some of the things they do, but the other thing that I love about Utah, and I think it's one of the coolest things, and, and you mentioned uh, a hunter, and I think it's so important that we have hunters managing hunters. I, I think that's, it's not as common as it used to be in the wildlife management world. And I love the fact that a lot of your colleagues, um, people at the Utah division of wildlife that I've got to know well over the years, super like they're, they're, they're hunters and they're really looking out, um, you know, for all those things you mentioned for kids and the future and, and they love it themselves. And I think that's so important. Um, just as time goes on, it's an interesting it's just interesting how things have changed. Um, a lot of states, their wildlife management, um, different, and, and, and it's okay, but I, a lot of them aren't hunters anymore. And so this is, it's, it's really cool. Um, I think, so one thing I'd like to talk about is like, I have been involved in a bunch of, in a number of states and kind of, as I mentioned, Utah does an amazing job on involving its sportsmen in the public process. Um, can you kind of catch our listeners up that aren't maybe super familiar with what Utah does? It's public process. Maybe even talk about like rule committees and kind of how they're formed. And then, you know, just the different things you guys do as far as like, you know, the YouTube presentations, having all the meetings streamed online. I just think it's super cool how the public can get so involved, whether you want to watch online or attend meetings. Can you kind of just talk about some of that stuff? Yeah, yeah, you bet. So, 
I, I guess just to jump back super quick yeah. on kind of the fact that a lot of folks that work for the division or hunters, is, that's one of the things that it kind of starts at the top. Like I think back through my career and, uh, you know, since they started working for the division, we had uh, Jim Karpowitz as a director. Um, we had uh, Greg Sehan, Mike Falk, Jay Shirley. Now all of our directors are like hardcore hunters. All the yes. directors I've had in my time, you know, like, Carpowitz killed like a 31 inch buck on the South Oak cliffs and he knocked about any yep. big bulls and, you know, and, and all those guys, you know, Sheehan and Fowkes, both of those directors were in Africa all the time. Uh, Jay Shirley, our director now, he's up in Alaska hunting, you know, almost every year, it seems like he brought back and shared moose steak to the bunch of us. And so it, it, it is really common in, in Utah Division of Wildlife. We end up with leadership, oftentimes directors that are coming up through the wildlife world and love to hunt and they're serious about it. And it, and it trickles down through, you know, through the programs and our biologists. And it, it, it's an awesome place to be. It's fun, fun to go to work with all these guys. And, you know, we got, I went to some meetings with some of our guys from Southeastern region last week. And, and uh, one of the guys killed, you know, a Pope and young um, mountain goat Billy last year in the LaSalle. And I mean, just every time you turn around, it's, it's a fun place to work with a bunch of folks that are super passionate about the resource and, and honestly have like a vested interest in, in making sure that we manage it well and, and do a good job with it. So I, I just was going to say that, that it, it's a culture that we've had in the agency for a long time and I love it. And, and seeing the people that we're hiring now, like the new biologists we're hiring now, I think it's going to continue that way. And, and that, I love that. I love, like you said, hunters, hunters, managing hunting is, is, just something that, that's cool and encouraging for sure. Um, so jumping into kind of the public process stuff, I guess just big picture, you know, uh, Utah, like most states we have, uh, we have in Utah, we have a wildlife board. Most states have a wild, like have a commission mm-hmm. and, and, and those folks are typically appointed by the governor. Um, in most states in Utah, they're appointed by the governor. And, and ultimately what we do is, you know, the division of wildlife, we, we make recommendations to our wildlife board and they'll, you know, they will, you know, approve those recommendations. They'll modify them or reject them. You know, they, they can kind of do what they want. They have that authority, but, but our job is to, you know, make recommendations to them and we base those recommendations on our management plan. And so we, we have plans that, you know, give us some, some direction, some guiding, you know, some guidance because uh, in the big game world, it's a double-edged sword. Everyone has an opinion, right? And yep. everyone, you know, and every unit is somebody's favorite unit and everyone has, you know, strong feelings about how stuff should be managed, which is awesome. It's also difficult to navigate that sometimes. Um, but I love that people are passionate and, and, uh, and so, we write the, we will write management plans and, and we have direction in uh, in state state law state code to you know put together these these groups of folks and consult with a diverse group of folks when we write a management plan um, and, and some of the folks specifically that we have to involve when we write a management plan for a species like deer or elk you know any big game species is we involve um, sportsmen uh, we also involve our public land management agencies, because in Utah, you know, 75% of Utah is, you know, Forest Service, BLM, you know, federal land. So we involve those folks. Uh, we involve private landowners. Um, we involve the agricultural community. And we try to involve like local elected officials as well, you know, a county commissioner or you know, those types of folks. We, we get those folks involved in the process and 
because there's a lot of different perspectives and ways to look at things and 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 there's some balance you know some species uh compete for resources or can cause can cause damage on private land you know if you're if you're uh trying to grow corn as a farmer and you have a herd of elk move into your corn you know it can be a really significant financial impact to your operation so you know we try to get a diverse group of folks that are reasonable and we can come together and and write management plans to take all those different things into consideration so we can you know manage the land responsibly we can um, try to minimize conflicts uh, minimize you know public safety issues that might arise and also try to maximize the ability for for our public to enjoy the resource and, you know whether that's through hunting and sometimes through you know folks that just want to go out and see wildlife and so you know we'll put together these committees and oftentimes the committees will have you know multiple meetings over months of time and go through all those different issues go through a lot of different data about uh, you know what's happening with the health of the animals what's happening with the health of um, you know habitats plant communities watersheds you know what are our, our issues or conflicts that we might have on private lands or with public safety that type of thing and then um, you know we'll write a management plan and, and our sportsmen are often really focused on the part of the management plan that deals with how we hunt you know mm-hmm. bucks or bulls yep they're usually super focused on that part and usually that's just one part of a, of a much larger management plan um, and, but that's you know if you're if you're interested in drawing a deer tag or drawing a elk tag, you know that's probably the part you're more focused on. But those plans are all on our website. If folks want to read those, you know they can go on and read them. And, and there's a lot of good information in those. We have statewide plans, and then we have unit specific plans, kind of underneath that umbrella of the statewide plans for for all of our deer units and elk units across the state. And and those those are done in a similar fashion where they form a committee with you know those same groups represented. But they just do it at a smaller, a local level. And so, you know, there's a ton of good information in those. If folks have, have questions or concerns, I would, you know, highly encourage folks to go and, and have a read through those and maybe not just the section on how we have bucks or bulls, but kind of get the whole big picture of all the different issues and, and things that are taken into consideration when we write those plans. So, yeah. And I think it's so important that like the general hunters know that, so there's these management plans that you guys are, you guys are bound to manage within these management plans. So, and and most of them have what, like a five year to 10 year window. Is that kind of common? Yep. 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 Most of them are in that ballpark. If they're long, if they're much longer than five years, then we usually have like a schedule to do kind of like a mid plan review. Gotcha. And step, step in, you know, partway through and, and reconvene the committee, maybe just for like a meeting or two to see like, okay, is stuff going all right? Is, is the plan working? If it's not working, do we need to make the minor fix or do we need to make a major adjustment? And if we do, you know, then we'll, then we'll do that. And, and we take those plans through our public process to get, you know, it's not just done in a vacuum with the division yep. or even just with these committees. Once we write that plan, it goes through our public process. And if you want, I can dive into that. Just yeah, no, I think it's out. important. Yeah. So just guys know that like, yeah, I think that's important because, so I think a lot of times I hear people, you know, just make comments like, um, you know, they wish the division would cut tags in this unit or they wish they would division would do this. Yeah. Well, 
I think it's important for the public to understand that the way that it's set up is that there's a management plan that's put into place and then you guys manage to hit that plan. And so you'll have, you know, herd objectives or buck to doe ratios kind of just varies through in the plan. But the public has an opportunity, just a general everyday Joe off the street has an opportunity to attend a regional advisory council, which maybe we dive into that a little bit and kind of how those work, yeah. but they, but they get an opportunity to comment at the wildlife board meeting and at these regional advisory councils to kind of help shift the plan. Like if maybe there's a part they don't agree with, or they have concerns about it, that, that there is an opportunity. And really that is the time when the public should be out trying to you know convey their message or to you know if they if they have concerns with something to get involved in that process instead of the i guess what's hard is you have all these competing interests like you talk about so we have guys that maybe want to you know we'll just talk hunters that maybe want more opportunity or you have guys that want higher trophy quality and so these competing interests they're all kind of battling together and utah's doing the best like in these management plans to kind of hit all of these things and provide different opportunity but maybe just talk about that rack process the wildlife board process kind of how that runs through so the yeah do you just dive into it yeah you bet and and i i guess too i'd say those management plans I think I think sometimes hunters don't realize, but those are super important because, like you said, that that's what the division's recommendations are based on. Mm-hmm. You know, they're based on the the goals, the objectives, the strategies that are outlined in those management plans. And so, like if you have your favorite elk unit and you love hunting bulls on, or you know, going to family members or whoever can get a tag on some limited entry elk unit, and and you see that the division keeps recommending increases on permits on that unit, and you don't like that. The reason we're recommending increases on that unit is because, you know, we have an age objective set and we're above the age objective. And so we recommend increases in permits to try to manage to, to, you know, to the target that's in the plan. And so folks will be like, well, why is the division doing this? They're trying to ruin my favorite elk hunting <laughs> yes. unit. And we're, we're not necessarily trying to ruin your favorite elk hunting unit. We're trying to manage to, to the objectives that are in the plan. And so, um, you know, folks come and want to argue with us. And, and, and really, I think, you know, that's when you want to weigh in, if you're like, well, this is my favorite elk hunting unit. And I think this unit should be managed for, you know, seven-year-old bulls, not five-year-old bulls. You know, that's when you ought to weigh in is when we're writing the management plan instead of fighting every year and getting really mad when we actually try to manage the approved plan. 100%. So, you know, just, just something to keep in mind. But the public process, how it works in Utah is we have, we have the states divided into five regions and each region has a regional advisory council. And so whenever we're making recommendations for a management plan or permit numbers, you know, any of these types of things, they go through uh, each, each of those five regions, through those five regional advisory councils. And before we go to those, those meetings, actually we record all the presentations, all the proposals that we're making and we put them up um, on YouTube and you can find the links on our webpage. Um, if you search public meetings on the DWR webpage, you can find the links and you can watch all the videos. And, and here's a hack. If you don't have a ton of time, you want to watch them, open them in YouTube and then watch them at like 1.25 or 1.5 speed. If they're, <laughs> if yeah. you're trying to do like the, the speed version. Yeah. That's a good idea. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're long, you know, last mm-hmm. year we took through a statewide elk management plan revision. 
which is a huge plan and a big deal. And I think my presentation on that, going through all the changes and everything we're doing was an hour long. Um, and, and an hour, I mean, when, when you think of it in the context of, you know, this is going to guide management of elk across the entire state for the next, you know, seven to 10 years, uh, you know, an hour is not that long, but if you're a busy person, but if you watch it on one and a half speed, you can get through it a little. Yeah, that's quicker. a good idea. That's well, a good point. Yeah. Well, slow it down during the parts you're maybe more interested in. You can rewatch those parts. So, but so we we put the information out there you know, with some supplementary materials. Usually, we'll have kind of like a written summary of what we're recommending. If there's permit numbers or anything, we'll have you know tables filled in with all the details of the permit numbers, that type of thing, as well as a presentation where you know with, where we go through and try to try to really explain and, and give the background and some context for what we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, you wouldn't believe how many times, Travis, I have folks that are like really mad about something or they reach out and they're confused or upset and, and they haven't even watched the presentation and they have no idea, you know, kind of the backstory behind it or where. And so I, it's, it's not too hard. We really want to make it accessible to folks. We, we want the information out there. We want to be transparent. You know, we want folks to understand where we're coming from and and I also understand that not everyone's going to agree all the time, and, and that's fine. But I think we can have a lot more productive discussions about, you know, if folks do want to change something or they don't like something, we can have so much more productive discussion to, and come to better better decisions if folks actually understand where, you know, where the recommendation came from, why it's being made the way it's being made. And so I, I love it when folks, you know, have watched the presentations or read through the materials and then they want to have a, have a discussion or talk about, you know, the merits of, of some idea. I, I love that. And, and that's the whole goal. That's what we're trying to do with the public process is make the information available to everyone and give them, you know, formal, formal venues for them to come and ask questions and, and, and state their opinions and their ideas. Uh, and so, you know, we put that information out there on the web and then we'll have the, have the meetings. They're scheduled. They're usually in the evening so folks can attend. Uh, I think most of them start at 6 or 6.30 p.m. So folks that work during the day can still come. Sometimes the meetings go super late. Sometimes they go till 11 o'clock or 12 <laughs> yeah. o'clock at night. But, but that's because we want to give everyone a chance to, to, to say their piece. And so you can come to those meetings and we'll go through stuff in the public you know, anyone from the public that wants to has an opportunity to ask questions, to get any kind of clarification or, or try to understand stuff better. And then they also have an opportunity just to state their opinion and, and make their recommendations for, you know, what, how they think, uh, how they think things should go. Um, and then those regional advisory councils vote uh, on the, on the proposal. And then after all five of those regional advisory councils have voted, we have our, our, our board meeting with our wildlife board. And they go through, you know, how the recommendations went and how the votes went in all five of the regional advisory councils. And then, and then ultimately the board will vote and, and make a final decision. They, they take into consideration, you know, how all the racks have voted, but the, ultimately the board has the final say and they're the ones that, that make the decision. And a lot of folks think the division makes these decisions and, and that we do it in a vacuum and it, it's really not, not the case. Most of the decisions and recommendations we make have been, you know, part of something that a plan that came came to came to be through a big committee that went through the public process, and then the recommendations made to that plan again go through 
through the public process and all five of the regional advisory councils and ultimately the wildlife board. So it's it's not just the, the you know the DWR making decisions in the vacuum. There's there's a lot of time and effort with committees and trying to get public input and feedback. And and we want we want that. We want to have a culture of of openness and transparency, you know, and cooperation, partnership with folks. I love do so I'm so glad you brought that up and see and that's the whole thing is I think a lot of people you know just at the me and Robbie have talked about this like coffee shop biology so you hear all these people like oh that damn division making these decisions they're doing this they're doing that or whatever you know and it, it's just and and a lot of times they've never once got involved it's it's I honestly kind of rack it up to the same type of thing like I hear people complain about you know a local county commissioner or maybe it's the president of the United States and then I find out these people didn't vote and it's like, you guys, like you have to get out there, have your voice heard. And, and that's the cool thing is like the division. So not all States do what the Utah division of wildlife resources do. There's a lot of States that put out these plans. They are a boring, they are a long document with a lot of information in them. And a lot of times you have to go and physically read this entire document um, just online. I mean, I don't know. Some people might like that, but I love how Utah will, they'll post on their social media. Hey, this is the proposal. Watch this video. They'll have links to it. You can go there and watch, you know, the presentation like recently on the elk plan, it was super cool because I was able to, you know, digest all the information watching a video and you would put up slides and it's not like we're just looking at you talking. You're, you're, putting slides up, graphs, showing different information, providing context. It's so easy to like to to watch this and to get a good understanding. And and I guess that's what's hard is I it's hard how hard I think Utah does such a good job about it, but still there's like this disconnect to the general public. And so I hope people can kind of listen to this and kind of understand you know, there's so many ways to be involved. Look at the management plan. Utah does such a good job and make sure you're following like their social media pages. Um, whether you're on Facebook, I think, I know they have an Instagram. I'm not sure on some of the other ones. I'm not very, I'm not very up on it, but I'm sure they probably, they do a very good job at public outreach and trying to get this information out there. And the other thing I wanted to talk about is so the RAC process. So the regional advisory council, that is compromised. So the, the rack is compromised. Is it, is it 10 or 15 P is it 10 people to DAX each region? Well, I can't remember. It might, I, I think it, I can't remember the exact, it's number, a lot. But it's in, yeah, it's in that ballpark. And, and we, on each of those regional advisory councils, we try to again, have like a diverse group of folks mm-hmm. on there. We, we have sportsmen, yep. you know, but, but we also try to have like a local elected official, if we've got, you know, uh, uh, like Indian reservations, then we try to get tribal yep. representatives on the, on the racks and, you know, public and at non-consumptive. large, yep. yeah, public at large, non-consumptive users. We have folks from the agricultural community on there. So these racks are, they're pretty diverse bodies. And w- one thing I hear from people sometimes, you know, in Utah is like, Oh, you know, well, the decision's already made. Those guys just rubber stamp everything you guys say. And, uh, uh, they they do not rubber stamp everything. I'm, yeah, I'm here um, to say they do not do that. I've seen some pretty and, contentious rack meetings and a lot of discussion for sure. Yeah, and and I've heard folks say, well, you know, I went to one of those meetings once and and nobody listened to me, and 
we had a wildlife board chairman once named John Bear, and John is great. Oh yeah, for he, sure. He's a really he's got a big personality. John's a lot of fun, and, yep. and John told somebody in the meeting once. He said, "There's a big difference between not getting listened to and not getting what you want." Yes. And uh, you know, sometimes you you go and you share your idea, and and maybe it doesn't get traction. But I have definitely seen people show up to rack meetings and board meetings with ideas that got traction. And uh, it's not impossible. It's not rubber stamped. The, the, the outcome's not already decided. And if you have a great idea or you think something should be different, you know, obviously you're going to be more successful. You're going to get more folks listening to you if you can, you know, rally other like-minded individuals that feel the same way and, mm-hmm. and, and, and reach out. You know, if you show up with a group of, you know, 15 people to a meeting and you all feel the same way. And it, it, it would, it would really surprise a lot of folks. I think the racks and the wildlife board, they really want to listen to the public. And, and, and it means more if you show up in person than if you just, you know, send an email or submit, submit a comment online, Th- those matter as well, but it, it means more if you show up in person. But For you sure. know, when people tell me, people tell me, Oh, my voice doesn't matter. They're not going to listen. I, I, I would disagree. I think if you can get a group of folks together that feel strongly about an issue and you guys you know, make the effort to show up to the meeting, it doesn't always happen overnight, but that's the kind of stuff that leads to changes. And, you know, there, there was a, a, a fellow a couple of years ago that said, I think our general season archery elk hunt should go a little bit longer. And he went to the meetings and sent a bunch of emails and the, the wildlife board extended the archery general season. Yeah, archery got it done. Hunt I remember that. Five days. Yep. Yeah, by five days. So, and that wasn't a division recommendation, you know. So, I mean, stuff stuff can change. They do. You can get listened to. You're not always going to get what you want, and and that's okay. And the division doesn't always get what we recommend either. For our, sure. Our stuff does not does not get rubber stamped, and uh, it, it's 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 a little ugly. Sometimes those meetings are a little <laughs> ugly. Like you said, you know, that's that's how the sausage is made a little bit. But yeah. It it is a pretty good process, and there definitely is a legitimate, you know, honest chance for for the average guy to be able to show up and and get something changed. It doesn't always go that way, but it can. Yeah, even recently on the, I was just going to throw out an example. So recently, um, there was a technology committee put together by the wildlife board and they come up with, well, I think a lot of good recommendations, you know, kind of, you know, offering mm-hmm. limited technology more, um, but they had, they had a proposal in there that was about radio use. Um, they were going to limit, you know, radio use. Well, that went through the racks and a lot of people, um, spoke their mind and, the radio so like two-way radio communication and that didn't go through i mean a bunch of people were kind of opposed to it showed up at the various meetings and so i mean it's all this the there's tons of little examples when it gets changed all the time so i think it's just important the public there's so many ways to get involved and then the other thing i was going to mention if there's anybody listening to this i don't know when this will come out we might miss it but i know like right now there's some rack seats open for sportsmen the public at large um so there are ways you could get nominated to sit on these boards and there's a nomination form on the division and they've posted a bunch even on their social media. So I guess what I hope more than anything is the public will get involved with the various, I, I think to have your voice heard, get involved with whatever agency, you know, maybe it's not Utah, there's various agencies, get involved and try to understand like how the systems work. And I think you can make more change or maybe instead of just complaining 
um, on the internet or to a bunch of friends, like actually try to get involved and then, and just learn kind of, I, I know me, for instance, years ago, I, I had a lot of differing views than I do now. And I started to get involved and learn these different things. And it helped me immensely, like try to understand management decisions. Like, okay, why are they doing this? Instead of just complaining, I think it's so important. So, um, I, I think we kind of covered that well. Um, I think to talk about some fun stuff that I think is really cool. Um, Utah, as I understand it, is leading the nation in habitat work um, being done. Can you kind of talk about that, Dax, a little bit, like on some of the habitat projects and funding for it and kind of how that's coming? And, and some of the projects you guys have been doing are just, it's, it's amazing. Like it's, it's super cool. And I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, you bet. And you know, our, in our agency, we have an entire section of our agency that's just dedicated to to habitat, you know, our habitat section. And those guys are probably the real rock stars here. So I'm not trying to take credit for that. And it's a huge effort. Yeah. Tons of collaboration and partnership. You know, a lot of the funding comes from sportsmen. Um, and then there's a lot of funding that comes from, you know, like fed, federal sources, land land management agencies like Forest Service and BLM. But so we have in Utah what's called is the Watershed Restoration Initiative. And, and this WRI, Watershed Restoration Initiative, it, it's unreal. Nobody else has anything like it. You know, we're orders of magnitude above and beyond what, what anyone else is doing. I just, I looked at it this morning. I knew we were going to be talking. I looked at it this morning and we've completed uh, up to this point, you know, we've completed over uh, up to 2,600 projects, 2.4 million acres, uh, $350 million in funding have been allocated and 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 forty million dollars worth of in kind contributions, so people volunteering time and equipment and, and that type of thing. So, and that's that's what's been completed currently in progress. Projects that we're working on right now. There's another two hundred eighty four projects, seven hundred thirty thousand acres, one hundred twenty five million dollars allocated, and another fifteen million of, of in kind contributions. And every year. I mean, we're doing large-scale treatments, uh, big acreages, fire rehab, installing tons of guzzlers, working on, you know, wildlife overpasses, underpasses, you know, crossing structures. We're doing, I, I mean, you know, it, it, in our board meeting the other day, we were talking about uh, permit numbers, and, and, and a few folks have been like, oh, all you guys talk about is, you know, permit numbers and how we hunt bucks and how come no one's talking about how to grow the deer herd. And I, and I, I kind of, I kind of got a little frustrated for a yeah. second there. And I was like, man, if you want to talk about growing the deer, let's talk about it. You know, nobody's doing more habitat work than us. Nobody's doing more, you know, more work to try to minimize roadkill and improve water distribution and do better fire rehab and, you know, thin, thin encroaching pinion juniper woodlands and improve winter ranges and improve summer ranges. I mean, the, the, it's a huge priority for us. And, um, you know, my predecessor, Kobe Jones, he talked about, you know, we have some challenges. A, a lot of folks want us to grow more deer. We want to grow more deer. And we have some challenges in some places. We are probably at the point where, you know, we maybe don't have the habitat to grow more deer. And so we're going to create more habitat. You know, if we don't have the habitat to have more deer, then we'll make more habitat so we can have more deer. And, you know, it, it's a huge effort, tons of folks involved, lots of partnerships, 
you know, and because it's such an effective process and we're so good at getting money put on the ground and getting things done that a lot of, uh, a lot of the federal agencies are funneling, you know, money that they might get through federal, big federal programs through WRI as well. Yeah. And like, and then using, you know, matching contributions. Sometimes these agencies are trying to come up with, uh, you know, funds and then they, there's, uh, there's a chance for matching contributions from federal agencies yep. and without that initial, you know, like, Hey, we're on the ground, we're going to do this. It's, it's hard. And that's, what's so cool is like, I watch and, and I think it's important for people to remember. I hear a lot of people make comments like, well, Utah's nothing like Colorado. Well, Utah's the, I, I think, are we the second driest state in the nation? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> It's second or third. Yeah, like, right there. I yeah. mean, it's a desert environment. There's, you know, the habitat. We just don't, we're, we're not Colorado and like the habitat. So the work that's being done and then, and Utah has a big population of hunters too. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of moving parts. And so I think a lot of if the neighboring states, if they were doing, you know, different things like Utah was on some of this habitat work. I mean, it's just amazing. Like, it's super cool to see it. I'm watching it happen. Um, I actually live in Idaho, just over the border. I grew up in Utah, but so like when I go back home, I have property and I, I still have a business down in Utah, but I'm watching these, uh, so I'm watching these projects happen locally. I've been involved, um, like some of the dedicated hunter opportunities. We didn't really touch on that, but Utah has this cool program called a dedicated hunter program. So basically it allows a resident or non-resident to hunt mule deer for th- on a three-year basis, all of the season. So you get to hunt archery, muzzleloader, and rifle. You only get to kill two deer a year. But instead of it just costing a bunch of money, what it requires is you to go out and do the, these habitat projects or to help the division in various ways. Like, you know, there's opportunities feeding deer, gill netting, habitat projects. But, dude, I've got to be involved in a lot of them. And it's so fun and it's so cool to see sportsmen out on the ground doing some of these habitat projects. It's been it, – it, it's so cool what you guys are doing. I just wanted to, like, highlight that. Um, and then some of the funding too, and I, I think it's important we touch on, I hear a lot of, uh, I, I, complaints or people questioning, um, Utah's conservation permit program. So the conservation permit program, if you're not aware, basically Utah sets aside some tags that can be sold at auction. So you might have a guy that spends uh, 15, 20,000, maybe even 70,000 for an elk tag on a certain unit. So there's just a certain number of tags. Well, that money all comes back into funding these projects. So, you know, when you, you look at it and you think, man, that's kind of, and it's controversial, but I think it's very cool that somebody out there is willing to spend, let's say $50,000 on an elk tag. Like, and I sit and do the math in my head, how many general season elk tags would have to be sold to hit that, that number. And this guy's doing it for an opportunity at one animal and all those funds, like it just comes back, gets on the ground. And this is why we get to see all this. And I, I really, think the future is bright in Utah for that habitat work. You know, 
um, buying up some of these properties. Like um, I know sometimes there's been a critical winter range and the division's been able to, um, and it's a little different, but they've been able to buy some of these properties instead of having them develop. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a landowner that doesn't want to see development. And I know sometimes there's been even donations back to the division, but there's just been some cool stuff. The division's working on continues to work on. And I think it's, it's very cool and worth highlighting because without habitat, like you mentioned, um, we're not going to ever have anything to hunt. Like it's so, I'm so glad to see Utah tackling that and trying to get on it. Um, you want to switch to collars? Can we talk about collars? Um, I think, yeah, no, let's, 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 let's talk collars. I, I, I will say though, with regard to like conservation, permits, yeah. you know, we, we get some criticism sometimes on that, but it, it's a relatively small percentage of the permits. It's, it's less than 5%. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things is a lot of the folks that I hear criticism from that on uh, live in states that have like outfitter set asides. Yes. And, and a, I'm glad a lot you of mentioned states that. have, a, a lot of states have like, you know, guiding outfitter set asides that are, that are even larger percentages than what Utah gives in conservation permits. And, and the bottom line on that, you know, I'm going to be really candid here. The bottom line on it is it lets people with, with deep pockets have better access to really good permits, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a conservation permit program and they're buying them at an auction or it's a guiding outfitter set aside in a state where folks who are going to spend more money have better access at getting some of those, you know, hard to get permits. But one of the differences is in Utah, the, the money, 90% of the money goes right back into habitat and, and research and conservation projects. It's often used as match. We can use that money to get uh, like Pittman Robertson, that federal funding, the, yes. the federal excise tax on firearms and ammunition. So if somebody buys a, a bighorn sheep tag for $100,000, that turns into $400,000 that we can use to do bighorn sheep, you know, research, monitoring. Uh, you know, it, it lets us, if it wasn't for conservation permits, I don't think the WRI program would exist or at least not anywhere near on the kind of scale that it exists in Utah. And, and we take some criticism for it, and we do give a small percentage of the permit, you know, to folks that that have deep pockets, and those folks are really generous, and their dollars go a long ways towards doing good things, good things for all wildlife. But I, I do think it's kind of silly sometimes that some of our biggest critics come from states that give five, ten, fifteen percent of their permits to like outfitter and guide set aside, where it's kind of the same deal, where folks who are willing to pay more money get better access to good tags. And the state doesn't get anything extra out of it. The sportsmen, the general sportsmen across that state don't really get any benefit out of that in those other states. Whereas in Utah, it generates a ton of money. And then that money is used to make the resource better for everyone. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats. If, if some really generous individual is willing to spend $100,000 on a, on a, you know, on a sheep tag, that turns into $400,000 worth of awesome research and work we can do to better the resource for everyone, not just that one guy who bought the tag. So uh, I get that it's kind of controversial, but I just hope folks can understand. That's yeah. Such a good point. It really does a lot of good. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, and, and that's an interesting thing. And so a lot of these States for sure, they have outfitter set aside tags So an outfitters, just outfitters. So the general public doesn't, you have to buy them through an outfitter has, has this amount of tags. And yeah, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a crazy percentage that's taken right off the top. So the general public has no access to them. Utah doesn't do that kind of thing. So outfitters, um, they don't, they don't get these 
areas that they're the only ones to. It's Utah kind of, and I and I do like this from a business standpoint. I do like that. It's kind of cool because instead of you only having, so let's say you wanted to hunt like a certain wilderness in the state of Idaho. There's certain places, only one outfitter. So there's only one outfitter. So if you want to hurt, hunt this certain drainage, you have, you can only use one outfitter. He may be great and he probably is a good outfitter, but sometimes like you, you only have one choice and where Utah, you know, if you want to hire an outfitter, you got to go get a tag through various means, whether it's buy one of these conservation permits or, you know, draw out in the general tag and then you have you can hire you know there's there's a pool of outfitters you could hire that are all licensed so that's a i'm glad you brought that up and it, it, i do hear it's funny i hear a lot of the criticism on the conservation permit program from those same states um and yeah and meanwhile so they're upset about five percent of the tags going to the highest bidder in utah that money's coming back yet we're give they're given you know maybe ten percent of their tags to an outfitter. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I, and I'm I don't want my comments to be construed as like that I'm anti guiding outfitter. Yeah. And the the interesting thing is in Utah, a lot of those folks that buy those conservation permits still hire guides and outfitters. For sure. So you know there's room for those folks to still have their businesses and they work really hard and they they have a lot of expertise on the units and areas they guide. You know no no hate for those guys. But I just, I love how we do it in Utah because we maximize the benefit to wildlife and, you know, those small businesses, those outfitters and guides can still exist and make a living and do their thing. It, I, I just, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but I really like the Utah model. And, and sometimes I feel like the criticism, you know, they're, they're looking at it kind of myopically. They're not seeing the big picture. I love how a huge amount of money gets reinvested in, in doing good things for wildlife and folks still hire guides and outfitters too. Yep, you know, that for sure. Just, I, I love, I love that's something that, like I said, it's a controversial one. And sometimes if folks maybe took a step back and looked at it from a little different perspective, there's a lot of benefits there. And, and yeah, so yep. maybe went on a little tangent. No, there, no, I'm like, glad you jump, did. I'm glad. Collar, so. No, I'm glad you did. Um, so yeah, collar data. So this is another thing that, um, like, so conservation permit, they, you know, there's funding to be, so, and Utah has such a cool relationship with Dr. Larson, um, BYU, um, Brock down there. Like, it's so cool. And the work that's being done on collars is so cool in Utah. I, I don't know of any, as I understand it, Utah has like more GPS collars online than any other state giving us some super cool real-time data um it's pretty amazing man like watching your recommendations you know with this past hard winter super cool stuff that come out of that and can you kind of talk about how that's kind of got implemented and the change we've seen and just how it yeah how it's kind of morphed into this awesome i i think it's a great body of work yeah no it, it's so exciting and i so I, I was I was going to school at Utah State back in the early 2000s, and uh, I worked for for a grad student there who was doing a deer feeding study, mm-hmm. and we had some collared some collared deer there on the on the cash unit in, in northern Utah. Yeah, as part of that and, study. Yeah, I I was feeding. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so yeah, with with Christine Peterson back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I worked I worked for Chris. I was a technician, and we had some VHS uh, collared deer. 
and we'd go out with uh, you know our radio telemetry equipment. We've got that big antenna and, and a little handset thing that you know, and we're listening for beeps. And it's some pretty rugged country, you know, Logan Canyon, Blacksmith yes. Canyon, big rocky ledges and cliff faces, and the 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 signal from those callers was kind of bouncing all around. And I remember one time uh, the grad student Christine called us in. She said, "All right, guys, we're gonna." we're going to really ramp things up. We want you to get um, two locations a week on all these deer instead of one location a week in the summer. I think we only did once a month, but in the winter we were trying to do it once a week. So when we were spending hours hiking up and you'd have to hike up above this band of cliffs or to the top of a ridge to make sure, you know, the signal if it was bouncing from one side of the Canyon or the other, that type of thing. And we'd spend hours and hours to try to get two locations a week. And uh, dur- during my career, it's been so cool. I've seen wildlife management kind of change from analog to digital, you know, this, this mm-hmm. transition. Uh, kind of like I grew up without the internet, but then once I got in college, I had the internet. It's just this crazy just transformation in wildlife, wildlife management, wildlife science. Now these GPS callers, you know, I, I can program them. Most of our callers, we have them programmed to get a, a GPS location every two hours. You know, rather than two a week, I, yep. I can get a, a location every two hours, and it's super precise. When I was going out there with the VHF antenna, you know, I'd get to where I felt like I had a really good signal, and then I would, you know, mark a location on a map and take a compass bearing, <laughs> and then I'd go to another from another angle and get another, you know, location on the map and compass bearing, and then we'd go back and triangulate where we figured that that deer was based on, you know, the, where the two bearings intersected. And now we're getting, you know, super precise GPS locations every couple hours. Um, we have, when we started doing it with deer about 10 years ago, about 10 years into doing it with deer, because we just wanted to know, you know, what is going on with our deer. Yep. And so we put these GPS callers out and when an animal dies, we, we get a notification within, it's either six or eight hours, depending on how we program it. And so, you know, the animal's dead. And, and between our biologists and then the researchers we work with and like the students at BYU, they've been awesome partners on this. Like you mentioned, Dr. Larson, Dr. McMillan, we, most, most scholars we haven't picked up within 24 hours. And, and then we're determined, the real big part is we're determining cause specific mortality. So if an animal is dead, why is it dead? And, and by doing that, we're able to figure out what the limiting factors are in a lot of these units, you know, is it predation here or is it nutrition and, and, uh, you know, or what, what do we need to work on if we're going to try to address these factors? And we, and part of the impetus for this, part of the reason we started doing it was we, we would model our populations to figure, you know, trying to figure out how many animals we had and, you know, a, a model and, and a model is kind of a scary word. It, it's a word that a lot of people don't like, but, but the models, we'd have to, you know, your model is only as good as the, as the inputs you put into it, as the yes. data you put yep. into it. And so we were trying to figure out, you know, what our survival rates were. And a lot of this, it's like, okay, well, they did a study in 93 in Montana that said that uh, adult dose survival is, you know, 87% or something or 85%. So let's, let's use that number. And, uh, you know, I know, there was a study in Colorado that said, you know, fawn survival is, 60 percent so let's use that number and a lot of these times to build these models we were having to use data that were collected in other states and you know decades earlier and we just finally said we want our own data we want data from our local units and we want it real time and that's what we want to use to figure out what's going on with our population 
And so, you know, by, by having these deer collar studies across the state of Utah, we've been doing it for 10 years now, we have, you know, unit-specific data on adult survival, fawn survival, and specific causes of death. So our models are getting better. We're identifying limiting factors. And, and we've also um, been identifying migration, migration corridors, travel, travel patterns. And that helps us target our habitat projects to important areas or work on, you know, um, vehicle, vehicle collision, you know, issues when we see like pinch points where animals, it's just been a game changer. We have more data and better data now than we've ever had before. And, um, and, and that helps us make, you know, better management recommendations and helps us to address things that really are affecting our deer population. Um, to target the right habitat, to yeah, to, to to figure out what we need to do with predator management, with habitat management, with with harvest. Um, no, it's just been awesome. It's been such a transformation from the beginning of my career. You know, lugging up, trying to get above the the level of cliffs and you know the the China Wall <laughs> and Logan Canyon to figure out which side of the canyon the deer is on twice a week. To you know, I can I can walk downstairs in my basement, you know, on Friday night and, and pull up my laptop and see exactly where all of our collar animals in the state have been, you know, like hour by hour. So it, it gives us amazing data. In Utah, we've got, oh, we've got over a thousand collars on adult does. Um, every year we put a couple hundred collars out on fawns. We've got, you know, between five and 600 collars on elk. Uh, I think, you know, 150 or so collars on pronghorn. We've got collars on bison, on, you know, on Californian Rocky Mountain sheep, on desert bighorns, on mountain goats, on moose. Uh, I mean, and and then we've got, you know, we've got trans, GPS transmitters on sage grouse and turkeys, bears, cougars, all kinds of stuff. And we're doing more collar work and tracking these animals, learning about habitat use, migration, cause mortality. It's awesome. I, I love the data we have to help us to help us, you know, make good management decisions and make good recommendations. Onyx Hunt is the number one GPS hunting app in the industry, and one reason they're leading is because they're continually providing updates to the Onyx Hunt app. Updates like the new Onyx in dash navigation suite. From the time you slide into the seat of your vehicle. Viewing Onyx Hunt with CarPlay and Android Auto allows you to easily flow from Onyx to the road in front of you, ensuring you know exactly where you are and how to get where you're heading. Want directions to a certain point in the Onyx Hunt app, but don't want to keep glancing at your phone? Use the Navigate To feature to navigate to your saved waypoints. This is true off-road navigation for hunters. You can now use the Onyx Hunt app hands-free and have access to your map markups, public-private boundaries, routing, offline maps, and more. Do it all from the seat of your truck. If you're ready to make the jump, save 20% by using the code ROCKCAST at checkout. Well, it's been so fun for me, like, because I, yeah, I was watching, you know, back in the day, like VHF and stuff. And when I first started, like, kind of volunteering and helping, and then, like, recently, uh, one of my favorite things and is the cause-specific mortality. I think it's so cool, this data. So, you know, to go out, and I mean, I've, I've worked with uh, Sam Robertson, so he's up in the cash unit. I've worked with him a bunch, and, you know, and I've volunteered time to go out and try to get some of these collars, like, this winter when it was crazy. Crazy. 
Um, we just, it was wild, but like the work that's been able to be done and find out like, okay. So, and it's so cool because they're going out and doing a filled necropsy. Like, so like you said, within, try to do it within 24 hours. So they'll try to get, so the, the caller sends a mortality signal. They get an email of an exact location. So, you know, 24 hours later, or whatever they try. And I know guys working weekends, people are out and about all the time doing this. It's so cool to see the dedication from the biologist, but it's been really cool to go out and, you know, and so they're getting out there doing like a, they're basically, it's like a crime scene. Think of it like that. So yeah. they're looking at. <laughs> What kind of tracks are in the area? Was it, you know, if it was predation, okay, so is there coyote tracks? Is there mountain lion tracks in the area? You know, what I know to find out, um, just if they're pregnant, if they're not pregnant, um, breaking um, a leg bone open, doing a bone marrow check, like did this animal just, you know, starve to death? And then if there's weird cases, um, you guys will actually take them down. Like if the, the cause specific mortality can't be identified, you guys will actually take them to a necropsy lab and they'll do like blood work and stuff like that on them. Yeah. Super cool information. And to be able to get that instead of just having some VHF collar out there on the landscape, that all of a sudden, oh, it's not working or it's not moving for, you know, three months and you get out there and it's scavenged and there's nothing left but a pile of bones and there's no data. This is just so cool to see and how good you guys are. Like, I don't think it can be understated. Like, the dedication to get out there, find out, you know, and this winter was a giant problem with, um, winter kill. Um, that was super common, but there was some predation issues and, you know, and identifying K did this deer die of predation or was it just, you know, uh, winter mortality. So cool, man. It's just, it's awesome stuff to see what you guys have been doing. Yeah. You know, they'll, the, the biologists are so good at these field necropsy. Yeah, it's like CSI, yes. CSI units or something almost. But, you know, we're, we're pulling teeth from yep. animals, send, sending them into a lab and getting them made. And so we're, and we're looking at all these different things, you know, and, and it's interesting, you know, we're seeing, you know, different mortality rates based on age, you know, as you'd expect. But it's just kind of cool to, to throw that data up and look and be like, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, we lost some bucks on, on some of these units and the bucks we lost, you know, we lost yearlings and we lost bucks that were, you know, seven or eight plus and just stuff like that. It's interesting to know, you know, even within, uh, you know, the different age cohorts, uh, you know, we can look at it and see differential mortality rates. And, and that's the kind of information we can plug into our models to make them even better. When we know we get an idea for what age distribution is on a unit based on aging deer when we catch them, and then we know what's what's going on when they die and what you know the the different mortality rates based on the age categories that the animals are in. It, it's awesome, and our biologists, especially in northern Utah this this last winter, they I mean, they hands. really <laughs> care. They really yes. care. They're really passionate, and they work their guts out. Oh yeah, they were because they we're constantly getting mortality notices. I get a copy of every mortality notice for every <laughs> biologist in the state. And it, it was sad this winter. You know, I'd, I'd pull my email open in the morning and, and Dr. Larson from BYU had been sending out mortality notices at, you know, 5.30, 6am. And I'd pull my email open and there'd be, you know, 20 or 30 yep. different mortalities and almost all from Northern Utah. And, that, and that's one of the wild things this winter, Northern Utah, we had some parts of Northern Utah that were just ugly but Southern Utah, 
you know, we, we started wondering like what's going on in Southern Utah. We finally, you know, cause nothing was dying, which is awesome. And, yes. but it's so interesting because I think the majority of our public lives in Northern Utah and they just, and the news was all about record snowfall yep. and, and everything's dying. And then in the Southern half of the state, we recorded some of the highest survival rates we've ever seen for, for adult, adult deer and for fawns. And, uh, we, we had like no mortalities down there. So we, we weren't, we didn't know what was going on with deer body condition. And finally we had a deer get hit. One of our colored deers get, get hit on the road, on the beaver unit. And they went and looked at it and it was in fantastic shape. Some of the healthiest marrow, you know, this thick pink buttery. Bone it looked marrow. like fall marrow. I saw the picture. It was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, but it's interesting, and it's interesting how different things were from northern Utah to southern Utah. And because of, of these collars, you know, we can get a real quantitative feel. I mean, you had a gut feel for what was happening, mm-hmm. but we could get a real quantitative, you know, n- numbers and estimates of what's happening. And th- and those are the numbers. Those are that's the data that we that we used when we made hunt recommendations and when we recommended permit numbers and. I heard from a ton of folks like, oh, you should shut down all the hunts, close the whole state, this and that. And, and, uh, and I don't know if folks realize that there's a ton of, of money and time and effort and, and data that's all goes into those, to those recommendations and, you know, and stuff maybe looks as good as it's ever looked in a couple parts of Southern Utah and uh, the central part of the state. Okay. And then in Northern Utah, it's a little ugly and there's a couple pockets where it was, super ugly but it's interesting it's pretty diverse uh you know utah is a pretty diverse state and and we have really good data to help us differentiate and distinguish you know what parts did well what parts did okay and what parts was it was it bad uh it's an awesome time to be in wildlife management when we have really great data that we can use to help inform our recommendations yeah dude it, it really is it's so cool um and and I wanted to t- touch too, if like anybody's listening to this and they're like, man, I'd love to be involved or kind of get to know some of these caller, this caller information. Um, some of you probably heard Dr. Larson on the podcast with Robbie Denning. Um, that was a really popular podcast. We had a bunch of feedback on that. Um, one thing, reach out and contact him or the various states. So he has an email list. And what's really cool is Utah. Some of the states don't kind of like the general public to be involved and out there when you guys are actually doing like the collar, um, actually placing the collars usually in the month of December. So prior to winter, after some of the hunts, that's why they do it then. Um, but Utah's really cool about just letting the general public, like there'll be kids there. So they'll bring, they'll fly these deer at a lot of times back. They'll, um, not all the time, but they'll fly them. Sometimes they'll fly them back. You'll get to see kind of the process that goes through some blood work. They'll check to see if they're pregnant, do a body condition score, measure fat with ultrasound. Like there's so much cool data they get to when they're doing these collaring informations that that also feeds into it. And so if you're wanting to get involved with it and you live, even if you live somewhere, you know, and you don't mind driving to Utah, Utah's super cool um, to just let people, the general public come in and watch these studies. And you get such a good feel of like, man, these guys really, are doing a ton of work on this like trying to get all this especially with those and trying to make sure they're healthy 
get conditions and that all feeds into this metric so we've in past podcasts we've talked about body fat and how important it is healthy does and it's just it all feeds into it so super cool i love that uh the general public can be involved there too and it's it's just and to get involved in the process even volunteer i mean i i've been on multiple of them i'm carrying deer on stretchers from the helicopter landing site back over to a table where they're processing them i it's super cool stuff so it's it's really cool to be involved um i'm glad i kind of wanted to get in i'm and so you kind of touched on it but i wanted to kind of get into um buck hunting versus population management um it's 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 an interesting i think a lot of hunters you know this whole and i've heard it so many times this year it's driving me crazy but this whole let's shut it down let's shut the hunts down um and why that approach, that's really not going to help population. Uh, it's just, it's not going to help. Can you kind of touch on that and like kind of how Utah, maybe we talk on the general season um, versus limited entry, buck to doe. We're getting kind of long, but I hope people will bear with us. I think it's, it's, it's good information. So could you, do you mind jumping into that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we manage for a post season. So after the hunt, buck to doe ratio, where you look at, you know, the, and on our general season units, we manage those units for between 15 and 20. We've got a couple different categories, but our general season deer units are managed for between 15 and 20 bucks per hundred does post season. So after all the hunts are over, they're still between 15 and 20 does, or sorry, between 15 and 20 bucks per 100 does on the unit. Our our limited entry units we manage for 25 to 35 bucks per hundred does, and uh, and then we have a couple premium limited entry units, the Henry Mountains, the Pontagon where we managed to 40 to 55 bucks per hundred does. Plus we want a percentage of the bucks to be, you know, a certain age as well on those mm-hmm. units. And so, and, and a lot of folks, you know, really worry about buck hunting and if we're doing damage to our populations by how we're hunting bucks. And there's really pretty wide sideboards on how you can manage, you know, the buck to doe ratios that, that where you're biologically not having an impact, all your does are still going to get bred. They're going to get bred in a timely manner. You're still going to have, you know, your fawns are all going to be born, you know, pretty close together in the spring. And, and we have data from Utah because we look at pregnancy rates when we do these deer captures and stuff. We have data from Utah, um, you know, from deer in hand and pregnancy rates on deer are always like in the 90 plus percent range. Um, you know, 95% of your does are always pregnant, whether your unit has, 10 bucks per hundred does or, you know, 40 or 50 bucks per hundred does. And some of the old historic data shows that you don't really start to affect pregnancy rates or production until you get into probably like low single digit buck to doe ratio. Like if you get down to, you know, three or four bucks per hundred does, you might be approaching a, a biological threshold where you could potentially not have enough bucks to breed your does. But at 15, we're not even close, you know, yep. and that's the lowest we go on any unit. We're not even close to a biological threshold. So, so those buck to doe ratios, they're, they're kind of a, they're a good surrogate for buck quality. So, you know, units with fewer bucks left over after the hunt probably started with fewer bucks. You know, we're, we're hunting those units harder. Um, they're, they're more geared towards, you know, optimizing the ability for folks to hunt deer, you know, given a lot of opportunity, Whereas the units that we manage for the higher buck to doe ratios, you know, on those units, you usually see a lot higher success rates. There's more older age class bucks available. 
you know, it's more of like a quality deer hunting experience. And, and to do that, we have to really limit permits. And so those units are typically pretty hard to draw. Um, in Utah, we have two different point systems for general season deer and limited entry deer. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. You can put in for a limited entry unit that might take you, you know, a, a decade or two to draw. <laughs> yeah. or, or you can put in for general season units and, and those vary quite a bit. Some of them you can draw pretty regular basis. Some of them it might take you a few years between tags, you know, but so, so we're managing, you know, based on these buck to doe ratios and, and we we can take into consideration you know success rates and and all these things and and we look at you know production and farm survival and and we know what's coming into these populations we have good enough data now in the past we we managed buck hunting pretty reactively you know mm-hmm. we'd go out yep. and we'd look we'd look at the buck to doe ratios annually and we looked at three year averages and trends and we'd adjust when our buck to door ratio started going down, we'd cut permits. When our buck to door ratio started going up, we'd increase permits. And as we got better and better data, we decided we wanted to try to manage a little more proactively and make recommendations based on, you know, if we know what fawn survival rate is, you know, this year's fawns are going to be next year's, you know, half of those are going to be next year's yearly bucks. And so we, we, we did that. And, and during the drought years, when, when deer numbers were declining, we made some pretty substantial cuts on some units based on anticipated survival of fawns because we had really good data. And like the Pine Valley unit in Southern Utah is one that came up a bunch. We, we had, I think we were at 4,100 permits on that unit and we knew we were going to have a big drop in our buck to go ratio if we didn't make some cuts. And so we made a huge cut. We went down to 1,700 permits, a gigantic cut, much bigger than we ever would have made, you know, doing kind of the reactive method, but, but we had, great we had taller deer on that unit we knew where we were going to be the next year after the hunt the biologist went out classified over 2,000 deer buck to doe ratio was 19 and, it, and the objective on that unit was 18 to 20 so it came in right in the right, middle perfect. of the objective so so he nailed it you know we nailed it we had good data and we knew what was coming we made the appropriate cut and we nailed it so then you know a, a couple years later we're sitting there and we're looking at it and we're like, oh, wow, we've got 80% spawn survival on this unit. We've had high spawn production. We've got 80% spawn survival. You know, it's time to recommend an increase. We recommend an increase and, and everyone was like, well, not everyone. A lot, of, a lot of local folks were like, <laughs> what? This is crazy. You know, your three-year average isn't above the objective. How could you possibly recommend an increase? They had a short memory. They were fine with it when we made the cut to be proactive. But then when we saw we were going to have a ton of growth and there was the ability to add some permits back and still come in with the objective, you know, then, then folks, they love the data when it tells them what they want to hear. They don't always love the data if it tells them something they don't want to hear. But, <laughs> that's and that, funny and how that's hunters are like that. Huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know, the, big, the biggest opponents to hunting are hunters sometimes. Yeah, for sure we are. Yeah. No, but, and it, I, but you know. I was yeah, just going to say, ahead. I was going to say, well, it's interesting because a lot of people, and I think it's important we touch on this. So a lot of people are like, I think, um, well, if <laughs> like, why don't we manage at 30 bucks per hundred does? Well, I think it's very important that the management plan that was put into place, the deer management plan, like you mentioned is, is so it's between 15 and 20 bucks per hundred does on these general season deer unit that comes from a lot of public feedback. You know, it's interesting after every 
bit of research I've ever done when they've surveyed the general hunting public in Utah. They have always wanted opportunity, especially on these general seasons. It's always been such like, I think it's, it's overwhelming evidence. It's like 90% or 80 some percent. Most studies or most uh, surveys they've done has been people in support of more opportunity. So when you would increase, so let's say Utah increased the buck to doe ratio to 30 to 100 deer right off the gate. That would be a cut of, I, I mean, what, 50% of the tags roughly. I mean, maybe a little less, but a big, big tag reduction. So it's a fine line is like, do you want to have opportunity to hunt or do you want to sit on the sidelines for 10 years? And I think a lot of trophy hunters or, you know, guys that maybe hunt multiple states, we kind of get in this echo chamber where we're, we want all these big bucks on the landscape. We want to shoot them out the window, basically. Like we want bucks running everywhere. We want to see them. But I think a lot of times we forget the vast majority of the citizens of Utah and the hunters in Utah want general season deer opportunity. So that's, it's funny because I sit and listen to, you know, different, um, perspectives and concerns and like you said it's funny a lot of these vocal groups that show up um you know wanting tag cuts that kind of thing a lot of times they're like serious hunters and, and that's great and it, it's important but we have to remember i think this is just my take i think opportunity is super important and and it obviously is to the citizens of utah and that management plan it dictates that. So it's, it's super important to just discuss that, I think. And just so people understand some of these units, I, I, what is the Pine Valley right now? Is it, how many general season points would that take like a resident of Utah? Do you know off the top of your head? You know, I, I think it's going to end up being, you know, five, five to seven preference points. And it's probably heading up. So it's see, probably right, going, it's probably going to be even higher. So right there, yeah. you're kind of walking the line of that's not really general season hunting in my opinion anymore. So it's already to the point, like you're going to be approaching and with point creep and different various things, you're going to be approaching, you know, a one in 10 year type thing. I know some yeah. guys are cool with it, but the vast majority of the citizens of Utah and every survey I've ever read, and it's always surprised me how how important general season opportunity is to him. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. I think that's a good, the, the public likes general season hunting. I it's important. I know it saved me as a boy growing up. I, if I didn't have the opportunity to hunt, I, I wouldn't be on this podcast. I guarantee it. So it's just cool. All there's, there's a lot of different metrics and we have to remember as sportsmen, you know, sometimes these changes, be careful what you wish for. I mean, I, I can't imagine yeah. waiting once in 20 years, to hunt deer. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine on a general season that, that just seems so crazy to me. And, and we realize, you know, general season hunts for some folks, that's just not their cup of tea, you know? And that's mm -hmm. why we have, you know, general season units, limited entry units, premium limited entry units. And, but, but for a lot of folks, you know, they just want to hunt. They want to go on a regular basis. They want to take their kids. And there's a ton of folks out there that, are happy to just go hunt even if they don't see much or yep. maybe they shoot like a yearling buck or something, you know, and, and that's okay. You know, not everyone has to be, you know, holding out for a Boone and Crockett buck. If everyone held out for Boone and Crockett bucks, it'd be, it'd be pretty, <laughs> I don't know. It, it wouldn't be great, but, 
but that's one of the things we run into is there's a lot of people that just want to go hunt, but they're not as vocal. They don't show up to the meetings as much. And, and like I told you earlier, you know, folks that show up to the public meetings and, and that are engaged in the public process, they tend to get what they want. Yes. And so if the only, if the only folks that show up are folks who are like, well, I don't care if I only get to hunt once every five or 10 years, but I want to have a really good chance to take a really big buck. You know, then that's the way our management has shifted. And, and that's been the case in Utah for the last, you know, couple decades anyways, that we just continue to reduce permits. Our our statewide average buck to doe ratio on our general fees unit has gone, you know, has gone up and success rates have gone up. And, and those are all good things in a way. But if I don't know, I, I'd rather hunt mediocre bucks on a much more regular basis than only be able to hunt you know, every decade for a chance at a, at a bigger buck. And and the neat thing is you can do both in Utah, you know, you, sure. you can do both, but if we try to manage all of our units for really high buck to doe ratios, it's, it's going to get hard to draw. You know, I, I live in Northeastern Utah and the general season units here around where I live, they take two, three, four preference points to draw now. And, uh, and in Southern Utah, I grew up in Southern Utah. I lived on the Pine Valley growing up and, I don't hunt there anymore. I would love to. That's where I grew up hunting, but I, I don't want to wait seven yes. years in between tags. So I, I hunt elsewhere because, yep. it, I mean, it's just, it's tricky. And, and there's a lot of people that want a lot of different things. And we try to offer diversity, but I, I don't know. I do worry, you know, about our youth and recruiting hunters and, and just keeping deer hunting relevant. Yes. If nobody gets to hunt deer, suddenly it's not relevant. Maybe we lose public support. That's the kind of stuff that, that makes me a little bit nervous sometimes. If folks think deer hunting is just about trophy hunting, you know, the demographics of the state and, and the West is changing. And I don't know. We, we may lose public support for hunting or even some of the tools that we use to help with deer management, like predators, managing predators and I don't know if that's scary stuff to me. I, I hate to lose that opportunity for our youth, the future generations, and I hate to lose public support. A hundred percent, man. I totally agree. And, it, and it's changed a lot. You know, I'm 37 years old and I just look back. So in my young teens, you know, when I grew up, you know, going to high school, um, you know, middle school, everybody that like I was associated with, like, even if they didn't hunt, they went to deer camp. Um, like it was just a, like almost like a community thing. In fact, I think back in those days, Utah actually had um, two days off, like a vacation type thing that they kind of put right there by the, the deer season. I know in Southern Utah, they actually got, I think it was the opening Monday out of school, all the kids out yep. of school. I got the day off. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think, you know, and I, and I have a younger brother, he's a lot younger than me. Um, 14 years younger than me. It's interesting when I grew up to even when he grew up, like the amount of friends that he had that the families deer hunted, um, you know, this, this, when we limit opportunity and just the ability for people to have tags, I think one of the most important demographics in the hunting public to, in my opinion, is those weekend warrior type hunters that just they're supporters of hunting. They want to hunt. They're not out on the landscape, like killing the biggest bucks, whatever, but they're out there. They're supporters. They spend money. Maybe they only go on the opening weekend to Saturday. We've lost a lot of those people. And it concerns yep. me 
just going forward. I know that hunting, like, and I mentioned it, 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 I know it saved my life as a kid. I know I would hate to see where I would be right now if I didn't have hunting. Cause it was really the only thing that kept me out of trouble as a young kid. I, I really, it was, it was the only thing. So it's just, I worry for the future that maybe some dedicated, you know, some kid that might just fall completely in love with hunting might not ever even get the chance to just because he can never get a tag. And it's, I don't know, it's a concern of mine and it's just interesting. I see, you know, various states kind of falling in line. Like, um, you know, I wonder how much longer, you know, my home state of Idaho, how much longer um, we'll have general season hunting where you can just go to the gas station and buy a tag and go. I, I think the writing is on the wall for that to end and it concerns me. Um, one, I, I think it's interesting and you talked about it, but I was kind of wondering this. Uh, so Utah is one of the only states I know that you can apply for general season deer. And then you can apply for, so you can gain points for two di- separate species. Like, so or t- for two separate deer hunts. So there's the general season and then the limited entry. Do you, in your opinion, I, I think like some of these units, and it's funny, we talked about the Pine Valley and like approaching that, you know, maybe up to 10 preference points in a few years. Is it time, and I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, and this would just be your opinion, not your like official state stance, but like your opinion. Do you think we're kind of, I see the the two kind of almost merging into one and I'm interested to see what the new mule deer plan that's going to be coming up. So in case anybody's wanting to throw out comments, that's, that's coming up. Is that next year? I think. Yep. Yep. We'll so start on that. something, you know, uh, yep. So I just was curious, yep. do you think we're kind of seeing that mesh or is it time to bring general season and limited entry together. And I know there's some conflicts with it. There's a lot of lifetime license holders back when they were sold that are guaranteed a deer tag um, every year. So there's some interesting metrics to go along with it. But I just, I, I just, as I sit and I watch the changes, it almost seems like we're kind of, it's almost like we're going to have to head to that sooner or later. Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, you're you're totally right. We've totally seen kind of the, the the difference between, you know, general season deer hunting used to be, you know, we had statewide permits, over the counter. Yep. We were selling, you know, a couple hundred thousand tags. Yes. And then in the in the early '90s, we went to ninety-seven thousand tags. This year, we're down to sixty-four thousand general season deer tags. And the, the, the line between what's general season and what's limited entry is really getting blurred. Um, you know, that's something to look at the point systems and making changes there is something we've, we've looked at in the past and, and it's something we got asked to look at again. I know it's something that's going to be part of the discussion with the deer plan. It, it's tricky though. The deeper people get, the more invested people get yes. into the point system, the harder it is to make changes. And, and you're totally right that the difference, you know, what used to be considered general season deer hunting and what is currently general season deer hunting is two vast, they're two vastly different things. And it's probably a lot more similar to limited entry than it is general season right now. And I I think it's something we're going to have to look at and talk about. I also think it's really hard and a lot of people are going to have really strong opinions and feelings about it because everyone wants to have their cake and eat it too. And, uh, but but we are pretty unique in that regard. I not I don't think any other Western not state that I know has of. You know, multiple point systems. Yeah, I know like uh, 
Uh, South Dakota has some interesting stuff, but, you know, in Western states, I don't think any other state has, you know, multiple point systems for the same species. In Utah, we have general season deer preference points, dedicated hunter points, and limited entry deer points. Yeah, three, actually. Yeah, you're right. Three different three different point systems for the same species and sex, which is, it's not, not typical. Yeah. And, and, and bringing that up. So point creep, you know, it's kind of, this is happening all across the West. Um, I think when they originally come up with these point systems, it was a way to award people that were dedicated, you know, that kept applying, but call it's kind of scary as I, I, I look and I hear different um, statisticians and like guys that are really good with that stuff. Like Lindy Varney, I, I would like to get her on the podcast one time. I was, she was talking at one time or another and I don't even remember the context of where it was, but like, I think she was mentioning that some of these limited entry tags, um, once in a lifetime t- type tags that like a kid that started hunting back whenever she was mentioning that it would take a kid like 150 something years to catch up and draw a bonus tag. Um, like, so basically a high point, like Utah has kind of a weird system where half of the tags are issued kind of at random and then half go to the maximum point holders. Um, but it's, it's just interesting to hear when people like that discuss things. And I don't know, it's a, I guess if I was king for a day, (laughs) I think what I would do was I would look in some of these states, like maybe stop issuing points, like from this point forward, let that trickle down. And then maybe every point you get another chance or some version of a, but that's really the only way I can ever see this, this, this train that's going down this tracks to failure, in my opinion, to stop it. Um, I know, like, for instance, I'm sitting on mid-20s elk points in Utah. So it's hard for me to, like, because I I will get a tag. I will get the tag I want. I'm going to sit out a little while, whatever. I'm going to ride that, the the point creep train on down the tracks. And I'm going to get to where I want to be before the train crashes. But I, I just worry in the future, it's kind of interesting to talk about that and point creep. And I know Utah's done some cool things, like uh, for instance, this the recent elk plan. There was there was a bunch more opportunity kind of offered instead of having rifle hunts. You know, all just during the rut, we've kind of pushed them back. Um, what else? Oh, I was just thinking about the so in Utah on these general season deer hunts, they've allowed these late November buck hunts that draw out of the limited entry pool. So that I think they're given, you know, somewhere around five tags per unit, really low amount of tags, but it's offering more opportunity. It's just one of those things I sit and think about all the time. And I, I wonder like, how do we stop that, that proverbial train? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, uh, it's, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, no, I, it, it's kind of sad when you need to, you know, talk to a buddy who's a life insurance salesman and have him run the, like the actuarial tables to find out <laughs> who's going to, who has more points than you that's going to die so that you can, you know, yes. but you, you're right. The point systems, I think early on, they worked really well. And now we're to this point where, man, I don't know what the future holds. We're trying to work on stuff. You brought up a couple things, you know, with the last, last time we did the deer plan, we added in some limited entry hunts on the general season units, but because of the timing, the dates of those, 
we didn't, instead of managing the entire unit for a higher buck to doe ratio and cutting general season tags in half or more, we kept the general season hunting how it was, but then added, you know, these November, these November hunts, but it was one half of 1% of the total permits on the unit. So it's not done at a scale where it's going to impact the general season hunting, but because of the timing of the season dates, it, you know, it, it, it's a desirable hunt and folks are willing to put in and burn their, their, you know, their bonus points on it. And I was looking at the numbers and last year, you know, those, those permits on our general season units in Utah, I think they made up 27% of our limited entry deer permits. That's amazing. We're, we're, so there's things we can do and we're going to, and we want to keep doing those types of things. We added some late December archery hunts on some, on our, a bunch of our elk units. And there's things we can do, you know, based on unique timing and, and, and limited permit numbers where we can create a quality type experience without having to reduce other opportunity. But there's only so much of that we can do too. And I don't know if we're going to be able to ever catch up to that point creep. Yeah. That point creep train. I, pretty yeah, tough. It, it's a, it's a, it's a scary one. And I don't know. It's, it's a, I mean, I guess it's a good problem that a lot of people are interested in the resource. And, and if we, if there's ways we can make the pie bigger and grow the resource, you know, that helps as well, but it's, it's a real issue. And it's a, I wish I had a great answer and I, yeah, man, well, I it's, it's, it's tough one, and it's tough to keep working on it. Yeah. And it's tough for anybody just to sit down and you know what I mean? And tackle, like, it's just a hard thing because no matter what you do, you're going to affect somebody. And it's like, and I sit and look at it. I'm like, you really can't go back and like take people's points away. Um, like the only thing I could really ever think in my mind, and I've, I've put a lot of thought into it is like, I can only think uh, the only way to really kind of stop it is would be to just stop issuing points. We let everybody sit at where they are. So if you have five, you have 10, you have 30, whatever, you just sit where you are. And then we kind of burn it down through and maybe it kicks to, I, I don't know, some sort of for every point you get, maybe it's squared or maybe it's, it's just one extra name in the hat, something like that, but it's just one of those things. And it's interesting. I'm very curious because, and it's not just Utah, it's, it's all these States across yeah. the West. Um, you know, in Utah citizens, in my opinion, are kind of lucky that you guys do that hybrid type draw where you still, a guy with zero points still has an opportunity to draw a tag. It happens every year. Like some guy will draw a sheep tag with zero points, whether people yeah. love that yeah. or hate it, but it's, it's a cool thing that at least there is an opportunity. And some of these States, like a Colorado where it's preference points on deer and elk. Like if you're not at maximum points, you're not drawn. So it's, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this works out in the future and how some of these States maybe tackle this. It's, it's, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure things will develop. I'm sure as time goes on, I, I, I think it would be better if it was tackled sooner and later, but it's one of those things. Um, Dax, what about, um, Maybe we just talk about new rules this year for hunters. Um, there were some new things. I think we ought to just maybe touch on um, some new salvageable sure. meat requirements. Um, I think, let's see, what else did I have? Oh, the Garmin bow sight. Um, and then the new sure. restricted weapon definition. I think that's really cool. And it, it, there's nothing really in the works yet, but there, there's going to be some opportunity in the future for some cool, cool things there. Yeah. Yeah. We, we made a few updates, a few changes to our, to our, you know, big game rule. It, we, we've always had it that you can't waste wildlife, but it wasn't defined really specifically. And so 
we added some specific language just saying, you know, if you harvest an animal, you got to take, you know, your front quarters, your hind quarters, your back straps and tenderloins. Pretty um, standard. You know, a, yep. Yeah, pretty standard. It's pretty standard language. Most states have something similar to that. You know, some states like Alaska's more hardcore on that. Where, you know, and, and if folks want to, you know, do the rib roll or, or, or try some, you know, fried up deer kidney or something, you know, more power to you, go for it. But, <laughs> but, you know, minimum, you got to take the quarters, the back straps and the tenderloins It's pretty, pretty reasonable. Um, we, we made a rule change that if you shoot an animal, you need to go to where the animal was when you shot at it and make sure you didn't hit it. And we're seeing more and more folks, you know, taking longer range shots at stuff and then mm-hmm. not following up on it. And with, uh, with elk, we actually were seeing a lot of folks were hitting elk, especially cow elk, hitting cow elk, you know, that were clear up on a ridge somewhere in the snow, like on a later season cow hunt, and then not checking. And they were killing elk. They were hitting them, and the elk were... Yeah, you, you guys know, documented that, and right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we just if you're willing to pull the trigger and take a shot, be willing to walk over there and make sure. I, I, I hope that's reasonable. I, feel I like think that's, that's a good reasonable rule. thing. Yep. I think that's a good rule. I think, and too, a lot of times, you know, I think it is important. Like some of these capabilities on weapons, like it's unbelievable. Um, the shots guys can take and I hope, yeah, I hope it encourages because I do worry, you know, how many times maybe there was a perfect, um, you know, the animal didn't fall when it was shot. Maybe there was a perfect, I mean, I've seen, um, perfect, you know, a heart shot and animal takes off, runs a hundred feet into the trees, dies stone dead and it it would just take somebody oh i missed it you know maybe they thought they missed it um to recoil the rifle whatever so i think that's a i think that's a good rule yeah and you know we're we're trying to make sure we use the resource you know wisely and prudently and and uh yeah it's it's probably just a good practice but you know we hate to have to put some of this kind of stuff in rule we hope that hunters would just do it but sometimes you have to put it in for sure. You, you've got to form, formalize it just to, to make sure that folks do it. And, you know, one of the big ones you mentioned, it, you know, technology has just been evolving so rapidly and, and it, it's awesome. And it gets to this point too, where, you know, where we're trying to address stuff like point creep and find ways to maintain opportunity and let people hunt. And, and you know, and there's some technologies that like everyone's been, it's been pretty easy to come to consensus on like, okay, guys, we're not going to use night vision or thermal imagery. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to shoot stuff at night. You know, everyone's yep. like, okay. But then there's been some of these other technologies that come out that, you know, and, and so, you know, we had a committee that got together. They went through a lot of stuff. They, they looked at, they looked at, you know, what's going on, what are the trends, where are things headed? And, and they drew some lines of, you know, we're not going to go past this. One of them was, you know, we're not going to continue with the, this evolution of electronics inside our optics and, and sighting systems on weapons. Yep. And uh, and so that, you know, there's there's definitely some of those rifle scopes out there that, you know, or muzzleloader scopes that have, you know, range finders built in and ballistic calculators built in and, you know, automatically adjusting, you know, your crosshairs or an illuminated portion of your crosshairs telling you where to aim and that type of thing. And, we drew a line on those and said, nah, you know, you're going to have to do it manually. If you want to figure some of that stuff out, you know, do it manually. It's, we, we, we're just trying to keep this boarding, trying to maintain some of those ideas of fair chase and, and doing it in the name of, you know, maintaining opportunity and, and, and ethics, you know, it's, and some of the stuff, some of it's easier for folks to swallow than others. One of the big ones was by eliminating electronic sites and bows. 
Um, you know, that eliminated the, you know, the range finding Garmin site was, was a big one that a lot of folks came up with. And, you know, if you're a bow hunter, it's hard, you know, shooting an animal with a bow is, is hard. And that was a great tool to not have to, you know, use the range finder separately and then pick your bow up and, you know, to be able to yep. do it all at once. And, and there was a ton of discussion on it. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, a no brainer that everyone agreed on, but ultimately the decision was made that, you know, we, we're eliminating electronics, you know, these electronic aided sites uh, on, on weapon types in Utah and, uh, and doing that in the hopes that, you know, we can kind of draw a line and, and ha- not have the technology advance to this point where, you know, we, we take the hunt out of hunting. And, and so, you know, that, that's some of the stuff we're doing. And, and we've, we defined some, some restricted weapon types where, you know, going back to, to less technology and, and weapon types that are, that are harder to, you know, harder to harvest animals with. And, uh, we don't have any hunts currently on the books to use those restricted weapon types, but we wanted to have that as a tool in our tool bag as we move forward to find ways to maintain opportunity. And, and, uh, we realize you know, it, it might be harder. You might have lower success rates or you might not be able to be as selective on which animals, you know, you get to harvest, but, if, if doing that lets us let people hunt more often, you know, that, that could be a win. And so you know, those are some of the things we're, we're looking into. I anticipate that those will be things we'll discuss quite a bit as we look at our statewide deer plan revision this next year. Uh, you know, how can we incorporate some of these technology changes in, in our regulations in order to maintain opportunity and let folks get out and, and have the chance to hunt deer a little more often. Well, I love it, man. I, I've been a big proponent, you know, of, as, as I've watched technology evolve. I mean, I grew up um, bow hunting without a rangefinder. I mean, it's crazy to think that, but in the 90s, I mean, it was, <laughs> there was like maybe a couple around, but I mean, I, I've watched the evolution of, I mean, just the rangefinder and what it's done. You know, long range rifles were right after that rangefinder. It's very interesting to, and, and I think it's funny because hunters, <laughs> It's, it's interesting because I kind of giggle because a lot of hunters want this unlimited technology. You can't take my rights, whatever their argument is. Yet at the same time, there are a lot of the same guys that want higher quality animals on the landscape. Well, we are doing such a good job. Like the general hunter that's out on the landscape now with some of the technology, some of the clothing systems to backpacks to everything just makes you sit out there. You hunt harder, you hunt longer, and you're probably taking higher quality animals. And so there's that whole metric where you guys are trying to maintain some high quality animals, even on these general season type deer hunts but we're so good and effective and now we're, you know, killing deer. I mean, geez, uh, upwards of a thousand yards, some guys probably even further. It's, it's crazy to see this change. And I love, I love the thought in my mind. I really like these, uh, these restricted weapon, you know, type hunts, or maybe, maybe there's a variety of different things we do, but I think it could, while offering more opportunity and the ability to get out there a bunch, maybe we start to see some quality. So it's kind of a win-win whether you're in the opportunity camp or whether you're in the higher quality camp, you know, maybe to have a win-win and a chance for both on the landscape. I think it's a cool thing. And I, I loved 
the the wildlife board put together that technology committee and that was made up of you know various sportsmen different agencies like we talked about with committees it was super cool some of the stuff they've come up with i've i've kind of heard that muzzleloader um scopes are kind of going to be back on the table maybe next year that was something they were going to look at next year it's it's good i i think it's cool and you go back from the days even in the 90s you know uh 30-06s, um, 3 by 9 scopes, 300, and I remember 350 yards, 400-yard shots. That was almost unthinkable. And nowadays, I mean, little young kids are making that with very little effort. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see how things have changed. So it's cool. Utah is looking at that and addressing it. I hope some more states kind of get on. I think it's a, it's a good thing for the, for the division, keep opportunity up. Yeah, I think it's cool. So... Um, Dax in closing, maybe, um, we just discuss any, like, do you got any upcoming changes or what's coming down the pipeline for the division? We mentioned the mule deer plan. I think guys ought to be involved and kind of on their toes about that and watch for that and get involved. Um, do you got anything else? You know, that's probably the big one on the radar right now is, you know, you know, we're continuing with research. We actually have some cool, some really cool projects right now. Um, looking at uh, newborn fawns, and and that's been one of the questions that that that's come up quite a bunch, and that our biologists have had for years. Of you know, when we go out and do our our classification, our postseason classification, you know, a lot of units are our fawn to doe ratio is you know sixty fawns per hundred does. You know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe as high as seventy or seventy or eighty on some units. But if you look at our pregnancy rates and the twinning rates. You know, we we probably have 120 to 140 fawns per hundred does that get born. Yep. You know, and then and then when we come in in the fall in November December, it's half that. And so that's one of our questions is, you know, why is that? What what killing something those we can six months? Yeah. Fawns, what can we yeah. do? What can we do for to, to to try to carry more of those zero to six month old fawns over? And so we've got some uh, neonate or newborn fawn studies. Looking at those zero to six month old fawns, um, where we have uh, vaginal implant transmitters in some does, and then when they give birth, that activates and sends our researchers, our grad students, and our biologists, you know, information, and they go and collar these these newborn fawns. We've got um, we've got newborn fawn studies this year on the Nebo unit, the Nine Mile unit, the LaSalle unit, and the San Juan unit. Oh, that's and awesome. So, so, you know, that, and we're just getting, you know, that should be, you know, first week, first full week of June, second week of June, we should have, you know, peak fawning. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the big things we're gearing up for. And it's really labor intensive. It's a lot yes. of time because you've got to have people spread out all across the unit. We collar those does and, and put the vits in, in December you know, or in March and uh, in March. And so, We've got to have, but then they go back up to the summer range to spawn, and so they get pretty spread out. So we have to have really good coverage. It takes a lot of manpower to make sure we have folks where they can respond quickly to get colors on the newborns. But man, if anybody's interested in that, we should mention that because I I was able to do that on the cache when you guys did it on the cache unit. I was able to help with uh, BYU Sydney Lamb. She's a biologist now for the division. Um, You guys have heard her probably on the podcast. She actually did a podcast um, quite a while ago with Jordan, but I think it was Jordan and Robbie on that. But that's something super cool. So, yeah, if you're in any of those units or around there and want to volunteer, like going to see um, newborn fawns, uh, that it, it was super fun for me. That was a it was a big learning experience for me. I really enjoyed that. 
Yeah. So and yeah, get with your local division office and, and see if you get contact info for your local biologist or something. But we're we're happy to have folks involved. That's that's probably the big thing we've got, you know, coming up right now. And then just continuing following all our collared animals. It's looking like a pretty good year right now. It's been a rough winter, but things sure look green now and we're yeah, getting some sure. rain still. I just keep your fingers crossed that we keep with this, you know, El Nino weather pattern and, and yes. have a wet summer. And, uh, you know, and then we'll start on the deer plan this, this coming, you know, probably after the holidays, this, this, uh, January, February, we'll probably get started on a new statewide deer plan. So there's, there's a lot, lot, lot going on. Those are probably the big things right now. Well, I appreciate it, man. Really. Thank you for jumping on. If listeners want to get in touch with you, Dax, what's a good way? You want me to give them the Salt Lake office number and have them leave a message? (laughs) Yeah, you can send me an email. Shoot shoot me an email. Cool. Yeah, my email is just my name, Dax Mangus, D-A-X-M-A-N-G-U-S at utah.gov. Shoot me an email. It might take me a day or two, but I, I, I try to get back with folks and I you know, and, and if I don't know the answer to a question or what to tell you, I can maybe try to direct you to someone who can. It's a team effort. I'm not the only guy doing this. I'm just, yes. I'm just the one that gets yelled, yelled at in the public <laughs> meetings. But it's a team. It's a team of people, that, and uh, you know, in the, in the division, and also you know, our, our partners, researchers, sportsmen's groups. You know, it's a team effort. It, it takes a village to try to, you know, grow big game herds and, and do good things and. You know, I, I, I get a little bit of the spotlight sometimes, but there, there's a lot of people involved and, and we all want to be accessible and available and transparent. If you got questions, we're happy to try to answer them. No, you guys do a great job. And that's the cool thing is like, whether you want to talk to your local biologist, Utah, like I will say there's some States where I've left messages with biologists wanting to get information. And I mean, honestly, it's just impossible to get a hold of them. Utah does a fantastic job. The biologists on the ground, super, yeah. Find out who your regional biologist is or maybe what unit you want to hunt there. Utah has a pile of them too. That's the cool thing is Utah does a really good job with a lot of biologists. Um, and basically every unit or every grouping of unit, there's a lot of people on the ground doing this stuff. They, it's not like they're working, you know, 10 units and trying to get to all of them. Utah does a fantastic job with that. So yeah, get a hold of them. And I really hope people will just get involved. I think it, so many good things could come about if people would just get involved. So Dax, I really appreciate you, man. Oh, thanks Travis. Good talking with you.